So, Jay, Stevie Hunter is in Congress now. Hell yeah, she is. And that got me thinking. We don't see a lot of X-Men go into U.S. politics, do we? You know, it's really difficult to win over an electorate that hates and fears you. Uh, yeah, but it seems weird. I mean, it's such a political book. You mean, like, the metaphors? No, I mean the amount of time they spend on actual legislation and political procedure. It seems bizarre that the X-Men haven't made more direct attempts to get involved. Oh, they have, just not so much in the 616. But in other universes. Well, sure, I mean, hell, a few X-Men have even ended up president. I remember Kitty Pride in X-Men The End, but who else? Dazzler. Okay, I, I can see that. Cyclops, briefly. Huh. I mean, he got assassinated almost immediately. Oh, well, okay. Uh, but I'm surprised that Professor X didn't make the list. Oh, he did. He's actually, he's president in the Ruins timeline. Well, that sounds ominous. Warren Ellis, so... Yeah. Oh. Uh, so what does an Xavier presidency look like? Well, he moved the capital from D.C. to Westchester. Interesting choice. And he forcibly incarcerated any mutant with dangerous powers. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Oh, wow. Welcome to episode 164 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And... Um, welcome to all the folks who are here live at Rose City Comic Con 2017 in Portland, Oregon. Now, yes, yes, yeah, give, give yourself a hand. Yes, good call. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're so cool. We're, we're doing politics, so what was it? Please applaud? Is that please clap? That was it. Oh, oh. we should have made a sign. That would have been really cool. <laughs> we have signs, actually. We have, uh, we have Mutant Revolution signs from last night. Mm -hmm. Because we have decided, we decided that this year, um, what we are doing and what this episode is, this is, we are here for the mutant revolution. It seemed uh, timely. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So, uh, so we should say, so this will be recorded. You will all, oh, that's a different microphone. I shouldn't punch it. Um, no. And you want to, and, and I'm, I'm trying to do the pulling back thing. I always forget because we have to be like right up in our mics when we're recording most of the time. And these aren't like that. Sorry, confusing. But, uh, so many people will be hearing this, uh, <laughs> pop filter, wow. Many people will be hearing this uh, later, recorded, so if you're listening to it in the future, we're here in a room with a bunch of awesome listeners, and if you could have been one of them, I'm sure you would have, but we understand that that wasn't possible. That's okay. Next time, though, you should totally do it. And for all the people who are here now, to your future selves a week hence, uh, you're still rad. Yes. Stay rad. <laughs> all right. So, um, for those of you familiar with the show, this is going to be a slightly different episode. We're going to talk a little bit about why. Um, so, those of you unfamiliar, we don't talk politics a lot on the podcast. We're very frank about where we fall on the political spectrum. And we talk a bit about how the stories we cover might have read or come out of or, or been related to the politics of the times when they were written. But we don't do a lot with regards to current politics. We've made occasional exceptions. Um, but for the most part, we try to stay very much within our lane in terms of we discuss the X-Men, we discuss specific eras of the X-Men, usually in roughly chronological order. We discuss those in larger context, but um, yeah, we're, we're pretty, pretty into staying on topic. That said, <laughs> it is 2017. It is a year when I think, given current events in general and especially certain intersections of current events and comics publishing, it is 
not only impossible, but patently irresponsible not to address and to occupy those intersections. So this is going to be the Jay and Miles talk about current politics and how that relates to the X-Men episode. Yeah, and occasionally we get a listener saying like, you know, I just, I come to comics for escapism and let's just talk about the plots and the characters and stuff, but dude, it's freaking X-Men. I got a very angry email from someone who was like, can't you leave politics out of X-Men? No! This is a shout out to that person. This is me officially making fun of you on the podcast. But um, no, sorry. But here's the thing. And I, I want to talk about this because I feel really strongly that A, art is inherently political. This is, I wrote my thesis on this. Um, but that, that art, that anything that is published for popular consumption, that is part of a larger cultural conversation, can't exist in a vacuum. It's influenced by the time it's created, it's influenced by the culture that it's created, and it's for an audience. And the conversation starts and the way it interacts with those conversations cannot be apolitical. And I think that's particularly true of superhero comics. Um, and I want to talk about that because there are two givens that we're working from here in this episode. One is that superhero comics are inherently political. And specifically that um, the nature and premise of superhero comics conveys a degree of political responsibility. So there are a couple of reasons for this. First and foremost is their ubiquity and symbol status. If you grab a random person on the street, they are far more likely to tell, be able to tell you Batman's origin story than the names of their city council representatives. And some of that is, speaks to current political awareness, but more speaks to the fact that Batman's been around longer and Batman's been part of the cultural narrative longer. And that's true of superheroes in general. They are symbols as well as characters. The other point, and this is one I want to credit to G. Willow Wilson um, that she, she commented on, which I think is an incredibly important point, is that superhero comics are among the only media that explicitly label characters as heroes or villains. And saying this is a hero, this is what the term hero represents, gives, or a villain, gives those representations a lot more cultural weight than they would have otherwise. And it means that when you're editing or writing or producing those things, you need to be sitting and thinking about what those words mean and what they mean in your current political and cultural climate. And even given that all being the case, X-Men specifically, X-Men is extra political. I mean, it didn't start out that way, to be fair. Stan Lee just got tired of thinking up mm. origins for people. Yes and no. You can make a pretty strong case for early X-Men being a pretty direct metaphor or speaking pretty directly to um, Jewish immigrant experiences and... and oh, I'm talking even, even before the plot, just the very conception of the premise. No, I, I know. I'm talking about the really early stuff and oh. even... Yeah, this is, this is something I, I feel like I, this is one of those... Kurt Busiek is not at this panel, but if you go find him and ask him about this, he will tell you a lot more than I can about it and it'll be really interesting. It's fascinating stuff. But yeah, I mean, the X-Men mutants have always stood in for oppressed minorities. And what that's meant over the years, that's really changed. I mean, I think civil rights was probably by far the most uh, commonly seen allegory at first. At the same time, the X-Men, more than maybe any other Marvel character, save for Captain America, are defined by their relationship to dominant systems of power. They are working in or out of systems. They are the characters who, again, who have that representation, but who also are in Congress testifying a lot in the comics, in the movies, who are 
the subjects of active legislation at a time when not a lot of other comics characters are, um, and who, who interact really seriously with contemporary politics. I'd, honestly, I'd say other than Captain America, they're probably the most blatantly political characters. Yeah, I mean, it was, just, it was just recently in X-Men Gold when we saw the Mutant Deportation Act, which is, like, directly relevant to stuff going on right now. I think one of the more explicit examples of that, certainly even more than, like, the Mutant Registration Act from the 80s or anything like that. Yeah, and the other thing that I think makes the X-Men important as a political locus in comics is something we've talked a lot about on the podcast, and I think that a lot of the people we've talked to who listen to the podcast can speak to, which is that it's a comic that attracts a lot of readers who are coming from marginalized groups that a disproportionate number of folks who are hardcore X-Men fans are hardcore X-Men fans because they identify with alienation and marginalization. Um, X-Men is a comic that has always had very high concentrations of queer readers, of readers of color, of, of female readers in a time when, when comics were very actively unfriendly to female readers. And there were reasons for that, and they haven't always had representation that reflected that, and they haven't always, I think, earned that but the centrality of that metaphor and of, of what they mean and what they represent in their larger universe is something that's, that's made them a gathering point for readers who I think are disproportionately likely to be affected by, comp by contemporary politics. And it's actually really cool. If you look at the letters columns from old X-Men comics from the 70s and 80s, like that was evident even, even back mm -hmm. then. Like that was just yeah. right out there in a way that it certainly was for other comics, but I think not as much. Don't have any scientific data there, but you know, just to, from I what would, we've seen. I would actually love to go through and number crunch some of those letter columns. I feel like someone awesome. with a much better grounding in, in statistical analysis than, than I would need to be involved in that. But I would, I would love to see folks take those apart in, in those ways. That would be fascinating. So, I mean, there are so many ways to talk about X-Men and politics, so uh, Jay, where do we want to start? Gosh, okay, so, um, haha, what did we write down? So, I talked about the question of representation, and I want to come to that, because how many of you have recently heard phrases like, keep identity politics out of fill in the blank? Mm -hmm. All right, or, or, you know, keep politics out of comics, or how come they're changing all the comics to make them more politically correct? What happened to all of our white dudes? There are like barely any left. I know, it's only four out of every five characters, not five out of every six. <laughs> so, um, first of all, I'd like to say that the phrase politically correct is bullshit. Um, <laughs> I would encourage you to replace, if you ever are considering using it in a conversation, I would, I would recommend replacing it in your mind with not being an asshole. <laughs> because politically correct, first of all, as a concept, it was originally a positive thing. And yeah, the idea is to, like there are basic, fairly straightforward, fairly low impact ways that you can avoid being unnecessarily cruel. Isn't that nice? Why, why would that's you not neat. do that? Yeah, like that's great. <laughs> that's like saying, oh, they're so, so, so safe drive, they, they drive so safely. <laughs> oh God, they never swerve into oncoming traffic. <laughs> the horror. Um, but yeah, in terms of identity in comics, so um, we've used the term paper mirrors before. Um, and Jay, you could probably describe that better than I can. So paper mirror is, is a, a phrase that's stolen. I think the original use was the, is, as the term celluloid mirror. And I think, was it in the, was, does, it come, does it come from the celluloid closet or does it come from a, a different critic? I have no idea. I, I don't either. I'm sorry. This is irresponsible sourcing. Um, but when we say paper mirrors, we're talking about finding reflections of ourselves or of our experiences in books, in comics, in, in print representation, thus paper. Um, and 
most of those paper mirrors are gonna be partial. You're gonna find someone who speaks to a very specific aspect of who you are. And what you can find and how specific the representation you can find is gonna depend a lot on who you are, what you're looking for, and how directly your identity and the parts of your identity you wanna see reflected um, reflect the dominant paradigm. If you are a straight white dude who is conventionally attractive and Protestant, but not ultra observant, and uh, from the United States and middle, to, middle class to wealthy, you have a wealth of options. You can say, I want this, I like this character because this character has exactly my haircut and exactly my taste in French fries. And like, you can, you can get down to the details. If you are not that person, you sort of find things where you can and you find metaphors. And that's the place I think where a lot of us come to the X-Men. Because maybe we can't find a character who is visibly disabled in the ways that we are, but there's Nightcrawler. That's actually one of the earliest letters in Chris Claremont's run. Oh, I remember this is, one, yeah. Is from a woman who, who has physical disabilities that involve, among other things, um, fewer and some merged fingers on her hands. And talking about what it means to see a character named Nightcrawler who's not only in the book and central in the book and visible in the book, but in the book and central and visible as part of something and whose differences affect him, that he's not in a perfect world, that he has to face that stuff, but has allies on his side who are talking about it and just actually seeing that. And you see, you see some of that um, early on in X-Men to a degree. You see Cyclops with his, you know, having to have his glasses and stuff. You see Angel having to hide his wings. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, to a degree, it's like, come on, cry me a river. You can do awesome things that you have to hide. Yeah, also you are, like, otherwise the, the waspiest wasps who ever wasped. <laughs> and that's one awesome thing about the all-new, all-different era that started in the 70s is you start seeing characters with actual diversity in addition to the metaphorical diversity. Now, it was really just baby steps at that point, but still, credit where credit is due. I mean, how many other like black female superheroes were there at the time other than Storm? Trying to think of this, and I'm trying to remember when Misty Knight came in. She was later. I think so. This was like '74. Well, anyway, see, this is the sort of thing where if we were late seven, or late '70s, early '80s. <laughs> if we were recording, we would just pause it, look it up, and then come back. Like we already knew it. But you're here for the messy stuff. You're here for the messy stuff, but you're also here for the what we're talking about. X Men is the framing of what we're talking about, mm -hmm. but this this stuff is bigger. So. Yeah, so, and the, the metaphor has pros and cons. A positive point of it, and one of, that I think is, is an important positive point, is that when you have characters who are largely metaphorically representative, more of us can look at them and say, oh yeah, that reflects part of my experience. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wider range for us to read ourselves into them. You can, you can see this just in terms of visual representation. There's a Scott McCloud Understanding Comics thing where he talks about, well, the cartoonier a face is, the more people will see it as representing them. On the other hand, when the specific experiences, the specific real world experiences that are represented only belong to one group and it's a culturally dominant and culturally privileged group, metaphors aren't an adequate substitution for that direct representation. So there's that. So, so X-Men end up in a weird place where they are a very politically engaged, it's a very politically engaged comic, it's a very um, both, both metaphorically and, and literally just in terms of the ways characters interact with political structures. But at the same time, it represents and addresses very few actual real life things on that front because mutant always takes front and center. 
Like there's a mutant, you know, there's a mutant deportation act, but no one is addressing the fact that, as far as I know, like multiple students at the Xavier School are undocumented immigrants. I really hope they do. They totally could. It would be great. Yeah, it would be really nice to see. You see some of that occasionally. Uh, Greg Pak's Storm Run did a great job with that. Oh yeah, if you haven't read that run, freaking phenomenal. I wish yes. that series was still going on. It was so yes. good. Oh, so good. Um, and and Iceman um, is 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 going there to some extent, but it's been something that's largely missing and. It's been something that's largely missing at a time when Marvel is publishing a book about Captain America being a secret Nazi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the story is basically over, which is great, but that was handled perhaps poorly. That was, um, and that, that goes back for me, I, I, you know, talking about the social responsibility of being, a comp of being an entity that labels things as heroes and villains and is dealing with those icons and that you're not doing that in a political and social vacuum. Mm -hmm. And especially with X-Men, I think how, how that plays out. You know, X-Men fans are notoriously among the least forgiving in comics fandom. And I think some of that is because you and we tend to be among the most invested. Mm -hmm. And we tend to have very high expectations for and, and see a lot of potential and want to see it carried out and then be very unforgiving when you meet those expectations. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's one of the most important things about X-Men, to pull it back to modern politics. It's a book that shows us alternatives and it shows us, it shows us active models of resistance. It shows us that when we are working from the margins, we have the right and responsibility to demand more. And we, so we've talked about paper mirrors, um, which I think is a, a central critical concept to X-Men in terms of politics and just in terms of, well, everything about it. And there's also something I want to talk about. I, I've been trying to come up with a good name for this. I'm sure somebody out there, some uh, theorist or scholar has a, has a better term. I like yours a lot, actually. I think, I think if, even if there's a more dominant term, it's a really, really good one. So this is, what I, this is what I call paper windows as opposed to paper mirrors. It doesn't work as well because even though paper's not reflective, it's also even less transparent than it is reflective. It can be reflective. It can be transparent. Okay, well, well regardless, bear with me. Uh, windows, so, windows made out of um, greased paper were actually a thing. Well, there we go. It kind of works. Like glass was super expensive. Oh, yeah. I feel much better. But anyway, so I've come to X-Men from a place of being a lot of the terms that you mentioned, Jay. I mean, I'm a white cis, like I, I am a, in many ways, what normal is considered to be. And so growing up with the X-Men, reading X-Men as a kid, getting a chance to be in the shoes of people who weren't like me and to see them as both incredible people, but also people I could empathize with. Like, you know, if Storm is going through a struggle or Kitty's going through a struggle or Piotr or whatever, if the new mutants are falling in love and having fights and whatever, there are so many characters from, you know, admittedly not as much diversity as we would like to see, but still relatively diverse backgrounds getting a chance to put myself in their shoes, I guess kind of taught me early that, oh, hey, we're actually not all that different. What I am is not necessarily normal, it's just what I happen to be. And X-Men, X-Men having the chance to do that, I think is another way that it can be very important. Certainly not, you know, overshadowing the paper mirror aspect of it because that's something that people who are, in, who are marginalized don't have enough of in comics. But I like that X-Men can do both when it's done really well. That's, that seems huge to me. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the books that's nailing that right now is um, Ms. Marvel. Oh, Just in terms yeah. of giving readers, first of all, giving readers outside of the default target audience of comics who don't see a lot of representation, some really good representation. And second, giving people who would not, who would not pick up 
a book about a Pakistani-American girl in New Jersey. And a practicing Muslim. Practicing Muslim, but who will if it's a superhero comic, basically saying, hey, so here is, here's a character you're gonna identify with who is not like you. And who you're gonna start, and, and a group of people who you're gonna start needing to see as a person. There's, it's, it's actually, that's, that, that is something that I, I love when it works, and it's one of those sort of, not exactly sneaky, but it's a great, I think it's a great way to use big franchise stuff in a productive way, is to realize that it has a certain amount of reach and selling power pretty much no matter what you do with it, so use it as a way to get those, that, that default audience to look through those windows that they might not seek out to say, hey, it's cool superhero stuff inside here. Oh, and empathy. Ha ha, we've tricked you, now you're a better person, take that. <laughs> Yeah, Ms. Marvel is basically everything superhero comics should be in 2017. Yeah. Like, everything it represents is just amazing. If you haven't read this book, highly, highly recommend it. Nothing to do with X-Men, doesn't matter. So good. Same universe, she teamed up with Wolverine once, close enough. I get frustrated a lot at bubbly idealism. It kind of feels, it, and we're coming out of a period where it felt like a lot of what I could find in comics was either just utter endemic misery or like pure bubbly upbeat stuff. And yeah, Ms. Marvel is great as a character who persists and cares, but also earns it. Totally. Like, yeah, she's so good. And everyone who works on that book is amazing. Yes. Oh, it's so important. It's um, so important. So we're apparently burning through time because I forget panels are much shorter are. than our raw time. So right. we should talk about um, like actual specific stuff Resistance. in X-Men. All right, so we, we've been saying, you know, this is the mutant revolution and pulling on those metaphors. And I have been, I've, I, if you follow me online, you know that I look to panels a lot as a paper mirror. Um, and I look to comics a lot as a paper mirror. And I look to them a lot as a source for sort of symbols that help me make sense of feelings and life and a world that does not follow narrative rules. And I've, I've, I, yeah, I, I've, I've been posting, you know, my, my Queer Rage Cyclops pictures. But um, at the same time, I think the mutant revolution is, a really powerful metaphor for what I want and what I want to be part of right now and for cultural and direct resistance in an era where our president is functionally mojo. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't know who's listening or who's out there or other folks' individual stories for the most part, but um, I am a Jewish trans man. <laughs> in a relationship that is complicatedly queer and a marriage whose legality depends on both states' willingness to, like how states recognize my gender and whether same-sex marriage is legal in them. And it's really fucking scary. And I am comparatively privileged. I am white. I am, you know, I'm, I am in a city that is, I, I live in New York City, it is very liberal, it is a city that has a lot of social safety net built in, um, and is, is basically set up to be an effective resistance city, but it's still really, really scary to get up every day, and it's really scary to travel, and it's really scary to read the news, and it's even scarier to not read the news. And so the idea of a mutant revolution I think for me comes back to what the X-Men are at their core, which is family. Mm -hmm. The X-Men are a bunch of misfits 
and marginalized people who are incredibly vulnerable on their own, even the more powerful among them. You know, you see all of the what if stories, and there's the you know, what if this person wasn't found by the X Men, what if this character died, what if, etc. And one of the things you see most consistently is that, for the most part, no one really survives on their own. The mutant revolution to me is about standing up as a group. It's about that kind of solidarity and unity, and it's also about the decision to be visible in a large enough and significant enough mass that we can't be ignored. And Jay, you mentioned it being about family, and I think it's important to note it's specifically about chosen family, Yeah. which when you're a person in whatever kind of category or group or whatever who maybe doesn't have a home in the family you grew up with or the community you grew up with, being able to find that and have that shit be real, that's critical. And that's what the X-Men are. I mean, they're not a whole bunch of people with metaphorical eye beams. They're people with metaphorical eye beams and weather powers and teleportation powers and bones they can throw out of their flesh for some reason and stuff like that. They're all, they're all weird in their own way. They're all yeah. different in their own way, and yet they stand together. Yeah, it's about... It's about intersectional solidarity and allyship. It's about saying, we are coming here. <laughs> it's about saying, my powers are scary for mostly this, re my, you know, my powers are scary and destructive, but they're containable and I mostly pass. And your powers are much less destructive and you're much less likely to be targeted as someone who, who's, who could functionally, who's, who's seen as dangerous, but you're, phys you're physically, you, you, can't, you can't pass as human, you're, you're a visible mutant. Um, these are completely different places. We also have whatever other stuff we have going on, going on. But what we have in common is that we're all mutants. And I mean, let's face it, everybody in this room, we're all mutants. Yeah. And, or we're, or humans who are choosing to say, you never know, I might as well be, mm -hmm. or my kids might as well be, or someone I love might as well be. And those personal relationships aren't required to care. Like, yeah. So for me, that's, that's where the metaphor comes into use. And that's where having that as a unifying idea comes in, that this is, or where the metaphor becomes useful is, yeah, about, about those intersections and about that solidarity and about that finding the umbrella that we can all be under without having to discard our individual identities and without having to, to discard our individual needs and causes. So we're talking about, you know, what the mutant revolution is, how that applies. So I kind of feel like we should work in some of the particulars from X-Men, some of the political kind of standpoints of important characters, important events, that sort of thing. Yeah, so my favorite place to come to in terms of current politics is not actually the mutant, well, some of it's the mutant revolution stuff, Cyclops' mutant revolution, although that kind of fizzled. But my go-to right now in terms of X-Men is Dark Reign. We told you we were coming back to it. <laughs> Circled back. And I have mixed feelings about that era, but I fucking love the Utopia arc. We should probably explain briefly what the deal is okay. with that. Dark Reign, Norman Osborn ended up president, took over the United States, was still basically the Green Goblin. There are a lot of parallels to the current administration, although it was more than 10 years ago. Um, he definitely would have used Twitter if he had it. <laughs> Um, he set up an X-Men team and an Avengers team, and the X-Men team was run by Emma Frost, who had deliberately infiltrated them, but was still working with the San Francisco, ah, sorry, the, the X-Men who were based in San Francisco at that point. Um, the Avengers team was just sort of terrifying. 
But what the X-Men did, what Cyclops did, was to create Utopia, which was essentially... Well, not initially. Well, okay. The X-Men started out basically doing damage control resistance, helping out at the margins, but avoiding getting arrested or getting tactically arrested and using a lot of resistance tactics. And I should say, by the way, that I, I talk about disability activism. And again, I feel like this is a real pertinent thing right now. Um, and this is where, and I feel like, I feel very, very strongly, this is the Cyclops' is right territory for me. That Cyclops' modes of resistance are, hell yeah, are much, much more effective in actual resistance. Um, so where they, they were doing tact, avoiding getting arrested or getting tactically arrested when there were people who could do that without, who are, there's, there's a term in activism called arrestability, which is basically whether you are in a position where you could, you can do things that will get you arrested without wrecking your health, life, identity, et cetera. Um, and that's something that, again, is, is part of resistance tactics, choosing and, and making decisions based on that. And it's something that you actually see the X-Men talking about, if not exactly in those terms, during Dark Reign. So they're, they're working around the margins. They're trying to figure out how to survive. And what they ultimately do is a combination of incredibly effective use of news media and the foundation of Utopia. For those of you who are recent to the X-Men or missed a bunch, Utopia was briefly a nominally sovereign nation. Um, in some ways, it was a lot like a second Genosha. It was a place that mutants had default citizenship to if they wanted. Genosha, the later one that was good, not the previous one that sucked. Right, Geno Genosha under Magneto. Um, Goodish. Yeah, valid points. But, <laughs> but Utopia um, was, was technically, it was off the coast of California. It was on the, the raised remains of Asteroid M. I think we did a cold open about it. Oh, Asteroid M is really confusing. Um, and it was sort of in a perpetual state of, of kind of, okay, well, I guess we're here. What do we do now? Responsiveness. But it was the fr basically the last frantic action of a group of people who saw themselves in tremendous danger who were being actively and aggressively targeted by a powerful group with extremely effective media spin. And um, obviously it's not an option in literal terms <laughs> that a lot of us have, but it's, it's a very good, it's, it's one of the more direct resistance eras of the X-Men. And I like going back to it for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's easy to go to the Xavier Magneto thing, but I don't know. I mean, everyone tries to simplify that into an MLK versus Malcolm X thing, and that's kind of excessively reductive, I think. So I like your decision to go for something more current and something more relevant, something that was designed in a more contemporary political atmosphere. Ooh, can we actually talk about the MLK versus Malcolm X thing? Sure, and then we should get to questions pretty soon. All right, so I've said this before on the podcast. I will say it again. That is a bullshit duality. Um... The idea of Malcolm X as the socially acceptable pacifist who is not threatening to white liberals is... Uh, MLK. MLK, I'm sorry, I am... It's been a day, it's, it's fine. It's been a day and a night and a day and again, hurricane things and I just got texts from my parents, which is what I'm looking at. And Since we mentioned this before we started recording, uh, our parents are both on the west coast of Florida and uh, right in the path of Irma, so we are checking our phones a lot during this battle. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, Right, yeah, the people, people tend to represent Malcolm X as, as a 
not Malcolm X, or they tend to represent Malcolm X as the, the militant resistance, MLK as the passive and acceptable to white liberals who want to feel virtuous but really don't want to have conversations about racism and white supremacy figure. Those are both radical oversimplifications and I think in particular they do Martin Luther King a tremendous disservice and erase a huge amount of his most important work mm -hmm. and um, speaking and writing. So, but in terms of Xavier and Magneto, I think the relevant point is that we need both ideologues and actors, that the principles matter and keeping in mind the principles that we're fighting for and pushing for and the reasons we're doing things matter and having you know, an idea of the world that we're shooting for even if it's not a world that we're, it's a, if, even if it's a world that we're more than one step away from getting to is really important and so is taking down the structures that are preventing us from reaching it. And so is actively resisting oppression. And so is actively confronting violence in ways that are effective. And saying sometimes, and saying, you know, sometimes you have to take smaller steps and steps in a direction that might not be part of the ideal to survive to the next day and to have something to build on. And one of the things I enjoy about where the X line has gone is that it's not really about Xavier and Magneto anymore. I mean, Magneto's no longer a massive leader and Xavier's been dead for a while. The parallel I really enjoyed were sort of their ideological descendants, namely in some ways, and yes, I know we could, there are totally exceptions, but yeah. in some ways, Cyclops almost took Magneto's more active approach to heart, and Wolverine almost took, well, Logan, almost took uh, Xavier's more peaceful approach to heart, and I like that those are more complex versions of where that came from. You know what I like about them? I like that they both acknowledge that both are necessary. Exactly, and that's one of the most important parts. Yeah, that's something that you get at the end of AVX Consequences, actually in Cyclops' letter to Magneto, or not to Magneto, to Logan. Wow, I am really you got this. distracted. But in, in, in Cyclops' letter to Wolverine, and it's something you see when they have actual conversations after that. And I mean, I think it's critical. We need resistance, and we need schools, and we need both of those things because we need to fight for the, we, we, need, we need to keep fighting, and if we're gonna keep fighting, we've gotta believe and we've gotta build a future that's worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Finally, I wanna come back to something that we were talking about when we were planning this panel. Because mm -hmm. you were trying to think of what the X-Men, what the, the X-Men's closest metaphor or role in current political clashes and intersections would be based on what they do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, did you come up with any conclusions? Because I'm still just trying to figure out who X-Force is. <laughs> well, so people talk about heroes as, as you know, the better thing, as the, the better option. And if we, we take the premise that X-Men are heroes, here's what they are. They're people who look at things and look at folks who present direct threats to the safety and dignity of other humans, whether they are whether they are baseline humans or mutants, and who confront them non-violently when they can, and violently when that's the way to do it in ways that are about minimizing harm. Uh -huh. And minimizing general harm, but ultimately about neutralizing that particular threat. 
<laughs> Hi. <laughs> quite all right, quite all right. <laughs> all right, and so, yeah, with, uh, so again, we're not saying that is the only right solution. We're not saying the X-Men are always right. The X-Men are wrong a lot. The X-Men are wrong a whole lot. And the X-Men are inconsistently written. What we are saying is that if you're a superhero fan, if you're a superhero comics creator, if you're someone who talks about superheroes, it's useful to look at what the characters you idealize do and how they interact with the things they face and the things they support. And if you're reading those comics now and talking about those comics now, it's essential to do that. You have to. It's, yeah. Because the mutant revolution is here whether we're ready for it or not. Sometimes it's just sort of what's necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, it being a live episode, we always try to have questions. So if anybody wants to ask a thing, be it about X-Men and politics or just X-Men in general, it doesn't have to be specific to this individual topic. There's a microphone right there and you totally should. If you cannot get to the microphone and have a question, raise your hand and we will make sure that the microphone gets to you. Um, we should also say if you have detailed continuity questions, we are able to answer the stuff that we do on the podcast because we are research monsters. Um, if you have a question that we cannot answer on hand, we will post the answer online or answer it in a later episode. But it might be that we need to look some stuff up. Oh, man. And we have Wanda Maximoff in the front. Yes. Uh, that was a brave continuity choice. She's really complex. She's intense. <laughs> She's really intense. And an so awesome headpiece. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I was going to ask, it's kind of a confused. Go for it. I was going to ask, I'm a little, it's a little confused of a question, but I was going to ask about the ways in which the X-Men are presented as the, the pacifist liberal um, response, even when what they're actually doing is not, I would not describe it as nonviolent necessarily. No, yeah, they are, they are going and starting fights but they, or, get, or jumping into fights. So what do you think about the way that um, X-Men potentially provides a, a window, potentially a problematic window for people from, the, the, from, from different political views to think that they understand? I mean, part of it is, of course, just that it's a superhero comic, and so people are, people are just going to punch in a superhero comic. But yeah, yeah, when you get down to it, when you look at Xavier's dream as being one of peaceful coexistence, it can get a little weird at first glance, totally. I think the X-Men are a great window to, uh, to, to, discover, to discovering cognitive dissonance <laughs> <laughs> of, of looking at something and how it, it, it doesn't line up, because you're absolutely right. Um, and I think, I think in terms of what they represent there, that, that inconsistency, which is super common and super present. Mm -hmm. Hello. Yes. Hello. Um, I was wondering if you guys were mutants, what kind of powers or what would you look like? Hmm. Oh man. I mean, okay, so I've thought about this definitely. I know, I know we both have. Uh, surprising no one. What kind would we want or what kind would we have based on like personalities oh, and shit. current attributes? Because those are two different questions. <laughs> yeah. Both okay. Both, okay. Um, yeah. All right. So for me, if I could choose a mutant power, Madrox, easy. The whole, the whole like fear of missing out thing. Well, clearly the solution is to have like 40 of you around the world doing a bunch of different things. I would want um, to be able to manipulate my personal interactions with time to be able to slow down or speed up. Nice. That'd be handy. I would get shit done. It'd be great. I also, 
I don't know. And more like internal pursuit. Or flight. That'd be handy. I'd be actually, if, I, if I'm not going to be practical, I'm just going to talk about what I want. Flight, absolutely, hands down. <laughs> then you can just carry me around awkwardly and nope. my shoulders would come out of joint. Nope. How did that never happen? Like when Angel carries people? They work out a lot. Okay. Really strong lats. Um, I always, on a more personal level, I always really, really liked Longshot's powers. Mm -hmm. um, and for those, for people who are unfamiliar, um, he has incredibly good luck, like supernaturally good, which are based on his intentions. As long as he believes he's doing the right thing, things tend to work out. And that is such an appealing concept. The idea that you can just care so hard that reality rewrites itself. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's impossible, but man, what a world that would be, right? Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> you can't tell because I'm wearing sunglasses, but I'm side-eyeing you. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> okay, so since we're talking politics this time, I have a, rep a representation question. My familiarity with the X-Men is largely the 90s cartoon, um, and then you all, uh, for a couple <laughs> years now. And what I'm wondering, we have, we have queer characters explicitly in, um, in, in, in universe, but are there any trans characters or gender non-conforming characters that you're aware of that are canon? And follow-up question, is it terrible and sad? <laughs> okay. The answer to that is that X-Men and superheroes in general have fallen down real hard on trans representation. Mm -hmm. There are gender non-conforming characters who are not particularly written as standardly gender non-conforming. Um, and I will say at this point, too, that gender non-conforming is a broad, broad descriptor. So there are a lot of characters who I would describe as not conforming to traditional gender roles or stereotypes, but who are probably cisgender identifying mm -hmm. characters. Um, it is an element of Mystique's characterization that I would love to see explored more textually. Um, there is Cloud, who is a... a um, oh, from the Defenders? Yeah, who is, is, is an arguably genderqueer character in the Defenders. Um, oh. There's, there are... I have really mixed feelings about describing Zaven as trans representation. I was thinking Zaven from Runaways, yeah. Zaven's a character who, like, Zaven chose to change their gender presentation based on someone, based on Carolina's sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, continued to identify primarily as male during that. And actually, um, is, is, and I, I might be missing things. I haven't read all of Runaways. I've read most of it, um, and it's been a while. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like X Men, and has has just massively, massively missed that and missed those opportunities and been behind or had the only characters who represented gender nonconformity, um, like significant or 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 um, or gender divergence um, be characters for whom it was part of the metaphor be shapeshifters or something like that, or aliens or something like that. Yeah, we definitely And were. yeah, it's sad and it's shitty and it makes me really angry. And actually in the audience, you raised your hand, did you have an example to, if we missed somebody? Uh, I mean, okay, yeah, okay, and that's something. Yeah, that's not, I haven't start. read that series. That's awesome. That's a start. There is, but yeah. Otherwise, I mean, you're gonna have to go to fanon or personal canon for that, mm -hmm. which is a huge goddamn shame. Yeah, I mean, and I hope we get there. We're certainly seeing way more queer characters in X-Men these days, but X-Men's always been like a little bit behind where it should be, or at times a lot behind where it should be. So yeah, let's see some trans X-Men. Come on, like, why would you not? Oh, uh, yeah, I had a question about um, how you'd like to see like X-Men uh, represent social issues, like uh, 
Uh, the two examples I was thinking of are like Miss Marvel currently and like Ex Machina. Like, would you like to see like more? I mean, obviously more like representation and intersectionality, but like, I guess X Men directly addressing like current politics, like outside of the mutant metaphor, like identifying with other minority groups. Like, at what point? There's obviously only so much you can do with that in something that's not being produced in simultaneous real time. Yeah, because yeah. Captain's Thomas so are created so much lines, before they come like out. That. And honestly, if there's anything we've learned from 2017, it's that it can always get worse in real weird directions, <laughs> real abruptly. What I think would solve a lot of my problems here is a version of X-Men in which mutant doesn't automatically erase all other vectors of identity mm -hmm. or become the primary vector of identity. I would like to see mutants talking about, I mean, again, I, I will go back to disability rights as, as an issue, but I would, I would like to see mutants addressing immigration issues because they are a largely international team and they're a largely international team with members who are likely to be seen as threats. And along those lines, I mean, it would also just be rad to see a, an X-Men book that's not just about people that punch the bad guys. I mean, I love seeing punching the bad guys. Don't get there me wrong. There have been a few. And there, it's, it's, seeing, it's, seeing it focus for an ongoing, yeah. though, that would be amazing. Yeah. Like seeing one, uh, a group of just activists, politicians, uh, public relations people, like having that yes. be the focus of an X-Book, that would be rad. Again, this is, I, I mentioned Kurt Busiek at the beginning, and I'm going to bring it full circle, and his, his imaginary what-if universe where, you know, Cyclops stayed in journalism. Oh, that'd be rad. Okay, <laughs> we're getting like really close to the end, All but right, I think so we can get both questions, questions up real fast. This. Cool. Um, uh, this is weirdly intimidating. Um, <laughs> we're, all, we're, we're, we're all here for you. Um, one of my favorite moments in all of X-Men history is um, Cyclops and uh, Whedon's astonishing run in, the, in that one issue when he, you know, they're complaining about the tights, Wolverine's complaining about the tights, and he mm -hmm. says, like, we have to astonish them. Um, mm. Meaning, like, we sort of have to embrace, like, being heroes. Yeah. And, uh, which is so easy to identify in a comic book because they're wearing bright colors or they're swinging from from rooftops. What, like, what's the thing? Like, what, how do we be heroic? Well, oh, my wow. favorite Cyclops moment in Whedon's astonishing run is when he reads Professor Xavier the riot act on Genosha mm. about mm. abusing danger. Right. And I think the ways that we can do that is wearing those colors having those things that give us the semiotics of being heroes. I think this is especially important if you are someone who is in a position of visible privilege, if you are that guy I described at the beginning of the panel, um, if you are someone to whom people who don't listen to a lot of us are likely to hear and take seriously, to stand up, wear those symbols, and say, this is what this means. Mm -hmm. And to have those uncomfortable conversations. I mean, yeah. nobody likes telling a relative that they're a racist ass, but some, if you can, then do so. I mean, do it nicely, because if, if, that's, if that works, Depending then do on the it. relative. Well, yeah, relatively nicely. But also, listen, identify with the people who aren't you. Say, this is an intelligence I don't have a frame of reference with. This is someone whose experiences I cannot directly speak to, but I believe them. Mm-hmm. And I believe their ability to assess their own needs their own, their, and their own experiences. Right on. Thank you. And we have time for one more. Uh, fun one to end out on, hopefully. Um, what are your hopes and fears for the upcoming New Mutants movie? I hope Danny shows back up in the books. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love Mirage. Yes. Oh, dude, so I am so stupidly excited about this movie. I know I should be cautious. I know if, if I open myself up, they can hurt me. But... <laughs> The director, uh, is it Josh? Uh, 
Boone, yeah. Um, the interviews I've seen with him, he seems to really get New Mutants. He seems really familiar. And so if it can bring in, I mean, yes, I know there's, there's the Sunspot casting thing, and that was a little iffy. Everyone wants to make Sunspot so much whiter. Um, what the hell? But... Uh, yeah, if they can keep that kind of diversity of background, but also just have a bunch of teenagers who are coming from different backgrounds and clashing with each other and understanding each other, have it feel like teenagers, have it feel like, have it feel that level of stormy and that level of important. Yeah, we've seen, with the X-Men, we have seen the, um, hero stuff, we've seen the cool stylish stuff, we've seen the everyone is gritty and wears leather stuff, we've seen the big epic fights, I want an X-Men movie that shows us that found family. Yes, exactly. We really and we are totally out of time, so yes. uh, I guess we should. <laughs> Thank you. We're not quite done. We still have our outro. <laughs> so, this special live episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X Men has been recorded in Portland, Oregon at Rose City Comic Con. We are ordinarily produced by Kurt Lloyd, but today our producer emeritus, um, Kyle Yount of KaijuCast, is stepping in um, to fill in. So, thanks, Kyle. Uh, new episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to be one of those folks to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And uh, also... Thank you to those of you who turned out. Yes. those of you who are here. To those of you who support us on Patreon, but also just those of you who support us by listening and by talking and being part of the conversation and giving us an audience where we feel like we can sit on stage and say the things that we said today yeah. and have those conversations and who've stuck with us through. A pretty weird year. Yeah, we mentioned, we mentioned at the party last night um, that if you've been here from the start, when you started listening, we were married and my name was Rachel. So thanks for seeing us through a lot of stuff. It's actually made a huge difference. Yeah, as a you rad. are phenomenal. We, we love you so much. Uh, Thank you. Um, and yes, thank you all so much for being here. This has been awesome.